A man become preeminent, he's expected to have enthusiasms. 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 What am I? What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? Baseball. Alrighty guys, welcome to another episode of the Pull Hero Podcast. Thank you for joining me once again. My special guest today is Jenny Butler. Jenny is an avid fantasy baseball player. She plays in several leagues in the NFBC. She did very well this year in the main event overall. She was 75th overall. Um, very good achievement. And so I just wanted to pick Jenny's brain a little bit about how she got into playing fantasy and how she got into... Um, playing high stakes on the NFBC. So, without further ado, here is my podcast with Jenny Butler. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Pull Hitter Podcast. Today on this beautiful day, I'm here with Jenny Butler. Hi, Jenny. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I think we were just speaking about the weather and how trying to capture this last bit of sunshine here in New Jersey, an 80-degree day. So Yeah. Yeah, here in Ohio, it was, I think it's going to be 78 today, and this is maybe the last one, so it's a little bit sad. <laughs> right, right. So um, have you um, been been knee-deep in the fast, uh, fantasy baseball prep for 2021 yet, or a little bit? A little bit. I haven't gotten into it as far as I would have liked yet, but I'm I'm getting there. I did one of the, I did the two early mocks, which I think we're going to talk about, and then, um, you know, one other draft, and it definitely made me think of how much work I need to do. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel the same way. And I, I hear like the pod, they're all like ramping up the talk for it. And I'm like, I really have to step up, you know, my, my research soon because I, this is my first year playing the NFBC. So um, I never really experienced the whole drafting in November, December um, experience. So I'm looking to try that out and see, how bad I miss <laughs> drafting so early. You had a nice result for your first year in. I did. I was, you know, God bless. Uh, I, I feel great, but I, you know, there's a lot of work to do. I know that I'm not nearly as great as a player as everyone else. So I got to, uh, you know, work to get better. That's what, it's why talking to everyone who plays these games just makes me better. I feel like myself. So I'm just learning a whole bunch of new things about how to play this game. So how did you get started playing fantasy? Tell me your story. Well, back in college, um, I started playing a little bit of fantasy football. I've always been a sports fan. I've been a baseball fan, especially since I was a little kid. I'm from Cincinnati. So that just, I think you just grow up with baseball in your veins. Right. And it was like the, 
sport that my whole family loves. So we went to a lot of Reds games. When I was maybe 10 or 12, we had season tickets for a couple of years, which was really cool. Um, but so I've always been a baseball fan and I like, I've always liked games. I've always been a game player. So I like the idea of fantasy, but fantasy football didn't really like do it for me. So um, when I was just out of college and started working, there was a coworker of mine that had a, um, was in a fantasy baseball league. And he actually asked my boyfriend at the time to be in it. And so I kind of piqued my interest and I kind of tagged along and I met everybody. I got to know them. And I, after about three years, they invited me to be in. Um, it was a, it was a hard league to get into. It's a lot of old friends and a lot of people that stay in it for, I mean, the league is maybe 25 years old and I've been in it for about 15 years and it's a tough league and a lot of good players. And, you know, it was just, there was, a, I had to wait for a spot to open up for me. So I drafted some teams for other people for a couple of years before I got my own team. And it just really took to it. Like I, it sort of does a good combination of, baseball, which I love, and math and stats and Excel. And, you know, I'm a spreadsheet kind of person. So I think it really worked out for me to merge my interests. You know what I mean? Awesome. So you said you, you drafted for some other people first, and then, and then you, so how did that work? There's like people who could make the draft or something like that. And yeah, that, that league has, has a live draft and which is one of the great things about it. But it was a bunch of college friends that um, all went to Ohio State and we're all in Columbus and um, people started moving away and everybody for many years has made the effort to fly back for draft weekend, which is, you know, saying a lot. It takes a lot. So, I mean, some people are flying from California and St. Louis and Chicago and all over the place, New York. And um, there was just often times that there was somebody who couldn't make it. And this was before Skype and Zoom and all that. So, right. We couldn't draft live and we didn't do drafts online at all. So I would just fill in and draft a team for somebody else. And uh, I think that that maybe gave them, the guys in the league, the confidence that I wasn't like totally incompetent. So they, uh, they let me in after that, but I, it was, it's weird to draft a team for somebody else. If you've never done it, it's a weird thing to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was just going to ask you that next, you know, how did that work out? Like, it, I know a lot of people I've drafted for have like, Oh, you know, if I win, I'll give you something or, but I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to do the fab. Like I'm not doing the fab moves too. So it's, <laughs> you know, that's a lot of the season. <laughs> yeah. The very first time I did it, I showed up just to kind of hang out at the draft and, somebody couldn't make it at the last minute. So I drafted with absolutely no notice. Wow. And I was not playing, I had not, was not playing fantasy baseball then. So I was just really flying by the seat of my pants and kind yeah. of just went with it. And then the next year when I still wasn't in it, but I kind of knew this could happen. I paid more attention and at least knew that if I got a chance to draft for somebody else, I would be okay at it. And so I, I think that that helped. And I just, sort of dove in as soon as I had a team and it's a really good league. It's, um, it's 14 teams, Roto. I finally talked them into using OBP a couple of years ago, which was nice. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just like a great group of friends and we all get together. It's a whole weekend event. We have, um, the day before for many years, there was a wiffle ball game followed by a barbecue and there's all still the barbecue, but I think everybody's getting too old and tired for wiffle ball. And, uh, <laughs> And then the draft takes all day on Saturday. It's eight auction rounds and we have no timer of any kind. Like these guys will just let somebody bid until it's, 
it kind of bothers me, but that's all right. And, <laughs> and then we do uh, a draft after that. So it's, it just takes all day. And there's no timer on the draft either. So it's, and everybody, like, it's sort of just, you know, the, the best part of the season is the draft. So why not let it take all day? It's, it's awesome. It's you fun. know what? That's funny you said that because the I joined a Roto League and it was, you know, a long-standing league with rules from way back. And they had no expiration on their auction, too. And it was live. And at first, I was just, like, sitting there. I was like, wow, like, what, what is happening? You know, what is happening? I kept saying in my head, but then the next year I, you like, I'm like, you know what, while everyone's deciding what they want, cause I'm like real quick on if I'm in on a guy. So you guys can keep doing your bidding on the players I don't want. And while you're doing that, I'm like redoing my values, mm-hmm. you know, doing inflation and all that stuff. So I utilized that time off in my brain. I was like, okay, you know, let them do that. I'll refocus. I'll like get really into the draft and not pay attention to, you know, um, Adam Dunn going, you know, for 17 minutes. So <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that. Cause I knew, I just, just made me realize I did the same thing. And when I started doing any other auctions, I don't have a lot of auction experience, but when I tried to join um, like an NFBC auction, it went so fast. And I just, I realized that I don't, I need to get better at this. I would like to do more auctions, but I, I realized that I was spending so much, had so much time before that now trying to keep up with like looking at my draft sheet bidding and then like trying to recalculate how much money I have left, how much money other people have left and all that. It was just like, I need to stop and not do this until I'm better at it because the actual auction got away from me a couple of times. Right. So, yeah, I need to get better at it. I'm not good at doing math in my head. So right, doesn't... no. You know, that's a that's a bad feeling, too. I've been that place where you just like, you know, wow, like just, you know, settle in on the players and I've just gotten the drafts get away from me big time because I'm, you know, trying to keep up with, like I said, recalculating values. There's some drafts where I just stopped and then like maybe – after 10 minutes, okay, all right, I'm just going to focus on my team. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do as much as I can and be aware of everyone's values. But, you know, at that point, you, I had to just like make an, a, a, a quick pick just to move on and just, all right, my team only because I couldn't keep up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I heard you say too that you had a little wiffle ball game. Um, did that have any implications on the season at all? Or did you guys just play a game? Because I – I have friends who play in leagues where the wiffle ball game has like implications on the league. That would be so funny. And I bet <laughs> if I had thought to suggest that it probably would have happened, but no, it was just for fun. And I actually never even played. I'm, I am. It's interesting. I would just listen to you talk to Alex Chamberlain and how much he thought that his playing was helping him. And I think that that's so interesting because I've noticed or I've thought before that the fact that I never play, I never played softball. I never played any of that. Um, It does. I do feel that sometimes when I'm trying to do analysis, like especially like pitching analysis. I mean, the the ingrained knowledge that somebody like Nick Pollock has just from having done it is so crazy. But no, I can't. I try to play softball ones and I don't know how to use a glove. So there's that. That's uh, <laughs> People laugh at me when I say that because it seems so obvious. Like you just clasp a ball with the glove. I can't, I can't like move the glove correctly, yeah. make it catch a ball. So I, I'm just done. I can't. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you just go out there barehanding everything. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I'm not sure if I 
throw either. I probably haven't tried to throw that much in my life. <laughs> That's funny. So, okay. So you got a home league that you've been in for a while. Um, what else do you play in? Like the, I know you're NFBC. And so tell me about your, you know, your portfolio of leagues, what kind of league to play in. Yeah. So I usually play mostly NFBC aside from home leagues. Um, I just like their format. I like the guys. I think that they're really on the up and up, you know, and, and there's a lot of other like fan tracks is really good too. And they're great, but I'm just sort of in the NFBC mindset at this point. So I play the main event. I usually play one main event or two, depending on you know how much money I have that year. And then um, I usually play an online championship, uh, a DC. Um, I like doing the DCs kind of early in the off season, slow drafts to kind of get me you know acquainted with the player pool. And then cut line, um, which I don't know. I feel like a lot of the norm regular NFBC players kind of aren't as much into cut line. I think it's fun. I think it'd be, you know, people should play it more. It's a, just a, it's a best ball format sort of, except that you have two um, fab periods, two fab days in the entire season. So it just makes it interesting. I don't know if I'd play it exclusively because there just isn't enough in season management to make it super interesting that way, but it's great to have kind of on the side to pay attention to as you're, you know, working on all your other leagues. So I usually do all of those. I've drafted live in Vegas for the last four years and anybody that can do that, I highly recommend it. I always am in favor of a live draft whenever possible. It's just like so much more fun. Right. Right. I'm hoping to do that. Um, this year, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the, you know, with traveling by the time we get around, but um, you know, I'm close to New York. I could do the New York draft, but I heard the Vegas is a good time too. So I would love to get in. Yeah. Vegas is the way to go. Yeah, right? I, I actually already made, I made my flight reservations for Vegas. We'll see. That might have just been wishful thinking, but they had their football drafts this right. fall. So they did. I'm crossing my fingers. Right. Uh, but yeah, I am... besides that, I play in two dynasty leagues. Um, one of them is the the dynasty baseball championship, the one that you said that you joined this year, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. I did the draft. Um, I did the first year of that, so I'm going into my second year. That one's crazy with 30 teams. Like the draft is just nuts. I don't even know what I'm doing. I, 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 I feel like in some round, I'm like, where do I go? Like, you I, know, young, do I go old? I tried to make like an age restriction rule. But now like at the point of the draft where they, you know, there are good 32 year old hitters. And I'm like, well, do I pick this guy to help me for two years? Or do I pick a rookie who might come up and maybe be as good as Justin Turner? I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I know there's no precedent for it. So I feel good like in that regard, but I probably felt more lost and it's not like lost, but like, you know, where do you go? How do you project five years? And which I think is the greatest thing about it. It's really cool, really cool yeah. format and concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tempting to go super young, but you have to remember, it's not like, oh, this is going to go at least five years. It's going to go five years and then be done. And then be done. So, I know. Yeah. I mean, you draft in somebody who's, you know, 18 is maybe going to help you in the very last year, but you know, that's wishful thinking. So right. I tried right. to mostly keep it to current major leaguers as much as possible, just because, you know, you also want as much for the software to pull from every year, you know, to, to accumulate that year's stats as possible. The more guys that you have that aren't playing, in the majors, the right. worse off you're be. So even if they're kind of mediocre major leaguers, at least they're they're gonna be there accumulating some kind of stats for you. Right, right. That's a good point. And I think that um 
I feel like that's what I saw happening the most was, you know, of course, everyone wants, you know, to look for the future and wants Wander Franco to come up and be a stud for them. But in all, re, you know, in reality, in probability, like that, uh, how, how many more points might he have than a guy like uh, Chris Taylor, you know, in the next, I don't know, like maybe I'm way off, but it's just, I don't know, it's, it's so hard to project that. So how did you do um, your, your, your pitching and your batting? Did you have, um, did you have an approach there, like in terms of drafting, uh, you know, um, pitchers later or earlier? Um, I usually, I think I pretty much did. I'm trying to remember because this was last year now. I'm trying. Um, yeah, I mostly just kind of went with the way I would draft a normal team in terms gotcha. of like this hitting. So, I mean, I have like you Darvish. That was probably my first pitcher the way I'm looking here. But I just kind of have a mix of, I think I was on the end of the draft and I almost every round, I think I went one hitter, one pitcher. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good. What about closers? Did you draft any of them? Not really. I have, right. um, I have like Diego Castillo, who I've always liked. Right. And yeah. Hansel, Hansel Robles, I think, was probably the one current closer that I got, but you know that didn't work out so great this year. And I have Joe Kelly, and you know, so I just kind of took some shots, but not really, just because like even if you hit on a guy doing well as a reliever one year, he could be nobody the next year. So right. Right. it's really hard to project forward with closers. Right. I know. Cause it's, again, it was some spot in the draft where it was like either a, a mate, like a minor league arm or a really bad pitcher, like starting pitcher in the majors or a guy may be projected for like 15 saves next year. And, you know, I'm just, uh, it was, it, uh, again, a lot of strategy when is going into this draft. It's still going on, and I'm, you know, I'm like, I want to do more. I think, you know, because this is definitely, definitely woke me up to see how a lot of people draft. And I could recalibrate. Yeah, yeah my it gets nuts by the end when you're get down into that 700. What does it go to? Like 750? And again, maybe it goes further than that. Further, it's, yeah. yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. I know. I'm not looking forward to it. So you also. Um, uh, I know you said you, you did first pitch Arizona for the last two years. So tell me how yeah. that works. What, what do you guys, um, how did that work, the draft there? So they have the conference from Thursday to Sunday, I believe. And they, um, it's just, it's a great thing. If you can, anybody that can get there, it's just so worth the trip. You, I mean, you're like just milling around with, you know, the Alex Chamberlain's and Paul Scorers and, you know, Alex Fast are just like hanging out with you, drinking a beer. It's so much fun. But um, they do in the late afternoon, uh, probably, I guess it was like Friday afternoon, they'll just have, I think they had four drafts set up. So earlier in the day, you can go watch the XFL guys draft, which is a lot of like, you know, legends of the league, you know, the Jeff Erickson and Doug Dennis and some of those guys. And it's just so much fun to just watch those guys draft. Right. And then I'll have, um, I think in the last two years, they've had two snake drafts and two auctions. So two years ago, I did an auction and I actually was sitting next to Alex Chamberlain in that auction. And just, that was the one where I was like, oh yeah, I shouldn't do this for a while. Cause I like watching him sitting next to me and auctioning. I mean, it was October so, or November. So, you know, there's some of that, but 
you know, it was just like, oh yeah, I, he won easily. And I actually had some decent pickups in that league, but I just realized how far behind I was in the auction world. But so last year I did a snake draft and it was really fun. And, you know, I, it's, you're also in a league then the whole year with, you know, some of your favorite analysts, you know, Justin Mason was in it and Derek and Riper was in it and Shelly Verstraight and like, it was fun. Awesome. And, um, it's, they play it out so that you, at least in the snake draft, you do um, 20, I think we did 21 rounds or 23 rounds um, at first pitch. And then the rest of it starts up in February as a slow draft. And it becomes basically a DC. Oh, cool. So um, there's no free agent pickups or anything like that, but you set your lineup. It doesn't count towards the, there's no money to get in. So it doesn't count towards the DC overall prize, but it plays like a DC. So that was fun. I actually did really well in that this last one this year, and I was leading it until the last week when I lost, I ended up second, which was kind of frustrating because assuming that there's going to be a first pitch Arizona next year, one of the things that they do in the sort of opening remarks is call out the names of everybody who won the leagues from the previous year. Oh, nice. And I want that so bad. I wanted <laughs> to have my name announced in the room, you know? Of course, yeah. Especially for somebody like me, like, I don't know if half the people in the room just think I'm somebody's wife that's tagging along, you know? So it's kind of nice to, you know, have your name announced as like, oh yeah, you won this league. And I was so ready for it. And I just missed out the last week. It was so frustrating. Oh man, that sounds like it's, it's definitely, so, you know, a very cool moment, you know? Yeah, just drafting in October with all those people there. And plus, you know, you're at a conference where you're hearing all this strategy talk. And you know, I think you said you watch PitchCon. It's like PitchCon, but live, you know? Right. And so to be able to just turn around and immediately implement that into a draft. Right. It's really nice. So you, I mean, some, I'm pretty sure Zach Gallon went for some crazy amount because all that everybody talked about last year at first pitch was Zach Gallon. So I'm sure he probably went way too high. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was good. I know. I, I, I really, um, I really want to get out to that too. That's something I definitely had earmarked for a while and haven't got around to it, but that's going to be a definite now. Yeah. Not just the conference, but the games. I mean, you get um, included in the price of the, you know, conferences for game tickets. Yeah. You just can go and watch, you know, we watched Vlad Jr. A couple of years ago, we watched, you know, you can see some of the great prospects coming up because everybody tends to send some of their best people. So you know, you can listen to the analysts talk to you about, you know, these guys that you're about to go watch and then you go watch them and it's great. That's awesome. So yeah. I heard you mention that you, you, you felt like you were way behind the auction um, game. What do you, what do you think you need to get better at to improve that? What do you like, what did you notice that you were off on? Well, I think I have a little bit of a problem sometimes knowing when to deviate from my values. Like I can go into an auction with values listed next to every player's name, but I'm having a hard time like pulling the trigger on ever going over, which, you know, some people just auction without ever going over their value and that's fine. But, you know, sometimes things seem like a value and then like a little bit later, there's even better values. And I tend to have a lot of like, you know, regret about like, oh, why did I spend this here and not here? And then the other thing, like I said, is keeping up with the accounting during it. I need to like format myself some kind of spreadsheet or something that can update values for me or something like that. And maybe right. some, to, even if I could like enter picks as they happen, maybe, and try to keep a, 
a running tab then somewhere separate of what everybody has left that would be great but i was trying to do it all kind of by hand on a little piece of scratch paper and that was just not flying so i need to i think come in with a better setup so that it have a lot more automation involved so that i don't have to do that kind of math on the fly right yeah i think that definitely helps once i move to like a system like that i definitely felt like it was way more comfortable with um you know knowing when to pounce on on guys you know because like you said like you know when the value shifted in auction you have to know like what kind of value it is at that point of the draft you know if there's more money being spent on pitching and you realize that you know maybe you need to go a little higher for a certain pitcher or all those intricacies of drafting in an auction it's just they're very pivotal to understand you know yeah absolutely cool so um how did your teams do this year um i think they did pretty well i didn't i had some leagues get canceled like everybody did i never mm. I, I heard you talking about going back and looking at some of those i should do that because there's probably some interesting stuff in there but i had a few that, that even drafted early um that ended up going through so i think i ended up with 12 teams after it all was done um, three of them were cut lines. So I almost, sounds funny. I almost don't even count those because there's just not that much upkeep involved. So I just sort of mentally push those aside and let those be. Um, so I think I ended up with, I think six or eight fab leagues. So that was, I probably don't want to do any more than that. Yeah. <laughs> for it's a hard. Long Sunday, especially right. if you really want to put in the work, but, um, I did pretty well. I, I had, there was a period in week like seven, I think there are 10 weeks this year, right? In week like seven, we're looking at my NFBC page. I was like one, one, two, two, three, five, like all right up there. And I was like, yes, this is good. This is, you know, I'm set up. And then the last two weeks, especially the second to last week, my teams just took a nosedive. Oh no. Like all across the board. And I don't really generally draft the same guys on all my teams. So I don't know how it happened, but they all just took a big old shit at the same time. And so like in the main event, for instance, I was hanging out most of the year between like 30 and 50 overall and like first or second in my league, which was great. I'm like, you know, there was even a day where I jumped into that 18th last paid spot in the overall and I was like, yes, this is fantastic. And then I ended up like 75th, which is still good. I'm so happy with that. But I ended up fourth in my league. Wow. Which is but I got no money out wow. of any of it. Wow. which was so frustrating because I was yeah. like right there and to get some, I mean, I was looking at most of the season and you know, comfortably in second in my league and just lost it all in the last weeks. It was so frustrating. Yeah. 75th overall. That's, you know, I consider that really good. So congratulations on that. And like you said, that's, that's, you know, that stinks that you couldn't even place in your league. Um, yeah, that's so a strong, yeah, strong top of the league right there. Well, you know what it was? I ended up doing um, one of, they had main event drafts up until the very last day, which was the first day of the season. So they had, I want to say it was just the one game at night on June, July 23rd, and they had drafts that day. So I was in like a 7 p.m. Eastern draft. So as the draft was starting, Max Scherzer was pitching and I drafted him first in the first round. And, you know, that ended up being sort of a, mediocre pick i would say especially for a first rounder but um it 
I think that being on the last day, it attracted a lot of really good players. There's a lot of really good players in my league, but I noticed that both my league and the one that drafted even a little bit later than mine, there was one that like 10 PM Eastern all had like top five people in the league were all in the top hundred of the overall. Wow. It was crazy. And I don't know, it made, it made me curious as to whether there's something to be said for drafting as late as possible. You know, the fact that we were also good in the overall and that maybe there's something to, you know, having as much information as possible. Obviously that's a good thing anytime, but um, yeah, it was interesting how well everyone that drafted on that last day did in the overall. That's interesting. Yeah. I, maybe someone um, way smarter than me can figure that out. Right. right. The overall standings of teams drafting later. Hmm, yeah. yeah, something to look into. So, um, so you mentioned to me Max Scherzer. Um, so, is that a, a a strategy you like to go often with a a pitcher in the first round? Yeah, I'm I'm a big, and it's interesting. I I think that this is becoming more of a thing now. Um, but ever since I joined the NFBC, I immediately sort of heard through the grapevine that pitching goes early. And I've always been somebody who wants to have a good pitching staff. So I just bought in from minute one on the NFBC of like pitching is going to be drafted early. And for the most part, I tend to try to get three of my first five are pitchers, maybe three of the first six. So I'm, it's just so comforting to have, a top two or three that you just feel like you can set it and forget it and not even worry about. I mean, you can draft, you know, really well and have, I mean, you can stream. And if you're streaming more than two or three spots, you're in trouble. Right. I mean, you can't stream four pitching spots. It just isn't going to work. So, mm -hmm. It's yeah, I, I just don't want to mess with it. I'm willing to stream a couple spots, but I like to have like that set top of my order. And you know, you, you there's everybody says, you know, oh, well, pitching so much more risky. Yes, that's true, but you're everybody's risky. I mean, it, you, you just kind of well said, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you're if you lose, you know your top guy, you just have to deal with it. I mean, it right. can happen to anyone. I mean, ask anybody who drafted Christian Yelich this year. It's not, it's, it can hit anybody. Uh, yeah. Very good point. Very good point. I, I, um, I struggle to, I, I'm not going to say struggle, but I I'm late to the party on pitching, you know, early and I'm, I'm getting more used to doing it. I not, I've always built my teams the other way. So just getting better at, you know, building teams when going pitching early, but uh, I definitely see the effectiveness of it. You know, it works pretty well. Yeah, I think you know? There was a lot of resistance to it from some of the analysts sort of saying, well, I'm, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. And then over the last two or three years, it's kind of come back to like, Oh yeah, I kind of have to do that if I right. want to get a halfway decent pitching staff. So sometimes you have to suck it up and go with what everybody else is doing because it's generally a pretty smart group. So you're not going to like get one over on people by, you know, doing this, I'm not going to take any pitching strategy. So just, just go with it, participate. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you put that. That's great. Um, who was, so who were some of your players that really um, anchored your team to share or who were some that really sank your teams? So I, 
it, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of guys that I liked this year that I didn't end up getting, which was really kind of frustrating. Like, I don't think I can to Maeda anywhere. And I was, I loved him. And I, I think that that's something that I need to think about going into next year. But some of the guys that I ended up with that really carried my teams were not even people that I was totally targeting. Like I, in that main event that I was talking about was after I took Scherzer, I took Tatis in the second round. And at the time I was just kind of like, yeah, let's go for it. Like, this is a short season. Let's see what happens. But it's, you know, it ended up carrying me for a good while. And, and I, yeah, I took Grisham too late who like, I liked fine. I wasn't necessarily targeting him, especially, but I mostly just try to make my teams have a good balance of stats. I try to keep track of my stats as I'm going along. And if there's a guy that fits what I need, I'm pretty good at not letting my opinion coming in, you know, affect my willingness to take them. You know, I try not to like go crazy over a guy that I think I like. I try to, or, or in, on the other side, avoid a guy that I don't like. It's just like, does this guy on paper have the right combination of stats? Well, then just do it. Like, I don't need to necessarily, I try not to pay too much attention to the name, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, and I think sometimes, too, like we fall, you know, we'll fall in love with our evaluation system or any evaluation system that we, you know, um, that's one of the 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 uh, the mantras of, like, the Baseball HQ and Mod channel is, like, you know, don't fall in love with the model, you know, like, yeah. because, you know, it constantly changes. It, things evolve, and, you know, there's always tweaks to be made, and, um so that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I feel like as a drafter, you know, that's definitely a point where um, there's a lot of things going on in your head, you know, when you need to fill a spot and maybe you're looking at guys who you won't normally, you know, target. Um, and it's getting over, you know, your biases of a player maybe to, you know, help your team. Um, it's a struggle. So it's a real struggle. Yeah, I think one thing that I'm pretty good at, and I don't know if this is because I'm female, I don't know if this is a particularly female characteristic, but it's something that I kind of aspire to, is to not have too much ego. So I think that there's a lot of people in the fantasy baseball community that want to be right and want to have like the guy that they talked about break out. And I, that's, I totally understand that. This is your job. Like you, It makes a difference if you predict the right guys. But for me, you know, I try not to put too much ego in it so that I don't think that, I mean, I don't just look at one guy and think one way about him and just laser focus on that. I try to like see the good and the bad in everybody and, you know, try to assess risk more than like targeting specific guys. Wow. Awesome. That's very well said. I think a lot of people can learn from what you just mentioned right there. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, so I know you participated, you said, in some too early mocks as well? Yeah, so I did the too early mocks. I harassed Justin Mason, and so he let me in, even though <laughs> I but, but, you know, I, he said, as long as you're willing to, you know, take it seriously and put in the effort. And I was like, yes, sign me up. So, um, yeah, I, I think it was really valuable. I like, I like having a slow draft this early in the year so that I don't have to be super prepared. I can sort of assess as I go and look up guys as I go. So in this one, I had the 10th pick 
Um, I took DeGrom in the first round and Freddie Freeman in the second round, which I think was really nice. He ended up being, that ended up being the latest that anybody got him over the nine drafts. Wow. So that 21st overall. So he went as high as sixth. So I thought that was pretty nice. I mean, you can say that was skill. It wasn't, it was luck. I mean, that everybody passed on him to before he got to me, but sure, I'll take him, you know? Right. Um, I love that start. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, in three of the first five rounds, I took pitchers. So I took DeGrom, Lance Lynn, and Clevenger, which is great. I, but I did it on October 5th was the day that I took Clevenger. October 6th was the day that he came out to pitch in the NLDS and pitched one inning and left. Mm. So that may not end up being – I mean, we're not playing this out, so it doesn't matter. But, you know, I think – Looking back on it, I think an, a good alternative to that would have been Kyle Hendricks, who went like five or six picks later than Clevenger, especially because I had DeGrom and Lynn. So the lack of um, strikeouts from Hendricks wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Right. So there's that. I, I did like the DeGrom-Lynn-Clevenger start. I think that that was a good start. I'd be happy with that on a team, assuming Clevenger will be healthy. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I would, yeah, would assume – Solid, you know, health. Uh, I think that's a great one, two, three start for pitchers. Yeah, there was another little artifact of it being a mock, I think, that I didn't really get any closers. And I think that it's not something I would normally do. I'm usually pretty good at getting, like, one fairly solid, at least that I think is going to be fairly solid, closer because I get too nervous waiting and just trying to, you know, take some darts later. So I didn't really do that, mostly just because – they kind of all went when I wasn't quite expecting them to go. And I just sort of said, okay, because I'm not playing it out. So that was like the one thing that I really did that was not what I would normally do. What about in your, in, in your main event this year, did you um, join the party of, you know, jumping in real, real early for uh, closers? I did um, to a point I took, I, I don't remember who I took. I'm looking who I took in the main event, but I um I generally don't go for like the very top closer. I in one league I think I got Hater this year because there was all that talk of like he might pitch, you know, as almost as much as a starter this year. So right. like that's crazy. Um, so I didn't do that, but I usually will try and get somebody from that sort of second tier which, you know, this year was like Roberto Ozuna, not great. You know, the um, Giles Neris uh, guy yeah, type of guy. I had a lot of Giles. I had um, yeah. Chapman, things like that. So, I, you know, it's I do like to get in on that whenever I can. But, I, yeah, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, it's always a crapshoot. You never know whether it's going to work out. But I, I want to – <laughs> yeah, I know. And especially with like the, it's just less and less guys getting the bulk of saves, you know, more guys getting one or two saves a year or three or five saves a year. So it's becoming um, more, I think, apparent that the teams are playing off leverage rather than, you know, saving guys for certain innings. Um, there's a big shift in that. And I know for the sprint main event, I definitely, you know, bought a little in too much to the rise in the closer cost kind of hurt me a little bit instead of just sticking to my usual strategy but hey we're leaving it was an expensive mistake but it was you know you live and you learn you know there's yeah no other way I'm, to do it. 
I'm looking back at my main event team now and I drafted Taylor Rogers. That was my guy in the top. Right. So that didn't really work out for me. I still, I like, I need to look into him because I still don't know why he didn't get the opportunity to be the regular closer. It was almost like right from the beginning, they didn't want him to have all the chances. So I, I need to look back at him and see whether he's worth reinvesting in. But I ended up with him, Archie Bradley, Diego Castillo were my main okay. guys. And it worked out well enough. You know, right. I ended up, I also got Devin Williams as a free agent later. So that was nice. Wow. Awesome. And did you, um, did you like anticipate his pickup a little bit or did you like pay a lot for him and in, in the week you paid? Cause I know a couple people anticipate, you know, might've jumped a couple of weeks on him and got him for cheap. And then all of a sudden he was, he was real and he went for a lot of money. Yeah. I, um, it's interesting. So at the end of this is kind of a side note at the end of this 2020 season, I actually went back and I, downloaded every free agent bid that I made and all the results of those along with the free agent bids and results of everyone in NFBC. And I think that that might be kind of useful later. I'm hoping that it'll be useful to go back um, and see how that, you know, went. Was this the first year that you um, tallied it? This was the first year that you did like started that process or you've been doing it? So there's been times in the last couple of years where I try to go back and look at that stuff. But once NFBC kind of wipes the slate for the next season, you lose right. a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And you can go like find your team roster and things like that, but you can't really get to those details. Right. So it looks like on August 30th, ooh, my birthday, I bought Devin Williams for $31. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I think that you got a pretty good return for him in that pickup. Yeah, not bad. That's good practice. You know, I, I definitely, um, I, I tracked a lot, as much as fab as I could. Um, but I definitely one of my main, um, learning, learning, um, processes of this year was watching, uh, how people fab and how it was accessible. Like you said, through all the leagues and Phil Dussault pointed me toward that, um, you know, uh, just the importance of that, just learning people's habits. And, you know, I know because this is my first year playing, I know the results and the money is a little skewed from like a regular long, you know, 160 game season. Um, so, uh, but it's still, it's still, I think a good habit and something I'm going to be doing going forward, definitely tracking all that. Cause it's available and it's there. So you have to yeah. use it to your advantage in really high competitive leagues. Yeah, it can be really useful. I'm not good enough. I don't think I haven't gotten far enough to really start factoring in how the other people in my league are bidding, which is really useful to do, but you kind of have to just take baby steps. So I kind of got to the point where I was able to get a good idea of how the bidding was going to go amount wise. And that's, you know, a whole exercise in itself. So, um, yeah, it's, you kind of have to just first learn how much you need to bid. Then you start looking at, you know, how your bids, you know, related to the other people's bids. And then finally, maybe you can get to the point of like actually paying attention to people in your league and how they bid. Right. It's it's all a learning process, you know? It really is. There's there's so much to, um, there's so much to do and there's so much, there's only so much you could really keep up with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. 
I feel like I talk about it a lot, but like sometimes I'm so involved with fab and who to pick up next that I'm not really paying enough attention to the team that I have now and the guys that are performing on a week to week basis. Um, so, but that's what happens when you get, you know, spread out into multiple fab leagues. Like you said, um, it just gets harder and harder to pay attention to each team individually. So, yeah, one, one thing I started doing this year that I heard Scott Jenstead say that he does, which, you know, if Scott Jenstead does it, then I must be on the right track, is every week on Sundays, I sit down and I make a list of all my teams. I make a list of where, what help, what category help each of those teams needs, and then what positions that team needs, and then what guys are droppable off of that team. Right. And that I had that sitting in front of me. And then actually I use sort of two sides of a sheet of paper and then all it's a sheet that I just sort of carry around with me the whole week. It's so advantage of having a purse. Um, <laughs> you know, I just carry it around with me and I also make notes on it on the other side. Cause I do most of my fantasy content consumption as podcasts. So I, as I listen to people talk during the week, I just jot names down. So I have end up, I go into Sunday and I have a sheet of on one side, just a list of names. And then on the other side, a list of my specific team needs. And it makes the fab process go a little bit smoother. You know, you don't have to investigate all that stuff as you're trying to get through it. Yeah, definitely a good idea. I, I, I try to do the same thing. It's on multiple things not just uh, i have to consolidate it into one area <laughs> it's either it's on a post-it here it's on notes on my phone and yeah it's all scrambled but gotta consolidate that effort a little bit but that's a good practice you know uh, i mean i feel like the same way you know I'll, I'll be outside and walking my dogs or something in the yard and uh i have a podcast on and pause it i'll take off my gloves and you know, go to my notes and like you said, you know, look into such and such, you know, yeah, it's, it's good though. You don't, you know, that's why all this content is out there to consume it and do what you can from it, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you about this current ADP um, that we seeing in the two early mocks and maybe some uh, the early um, NFBDCs and tell me how you think uh, how much it will change come, you know, February, March. Yeah, it was hard to know. So we started it um, around the 1st of October. So there wasn't too much of the postseason hype really factored in. Mm. I mean, I think Randy Rosarena probably got taken before. You know, he'd probably done some really good stuff, but it wasn't like this crazy level that he ended up at. So I don't know how much that really factored in. But, you know, you still obviously have the recency bias of just 2020 in general. So I think that it'll be interesting to see, and I'm going to kind of keep an eye on where it goes from here. So this is a starting point. And then in November, December, what are the ADPs? Because it seems to me like a lot of ADPs sort of get, they reinforce themselves, the trends. So you see a guy going in the fifth round in November, you know, by December, he's going in the fourth round. Well, then everybody who looks at that ADP says, well, if I want to get him, I need to take him even earlier than that. So they take him, you know, the next draft, they take him in the third round and so on and so forth. Or they see guys drop and they say, well, there must be a reason that people don't like them and they sort of continue to let them drop. So I think that there is some value maybe to, unless, you know, there's an injury or some kind of serious situation change, 
that, you know, it might be worth it to even kind of come back to this ADP later to see if it might be valuable, you know, to get some raw numbers before the group think sort of sets in. Right, right. And see the differences. Yeah, I, this definitely sounds like a lot of value in that. Um, definitely something I'm going to write down to do 100%. I like the idea of that a lot. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to draft with no ADP, which is one of the things that I liked about drafting at First Pitch Arizona. Like, you have nothing to go off of. And it's, right. it's great in some ways, and it's also super hard <laughs> in lots of other ways because it can be easy to forget about people when you don't have, a, you know, a list of everyone, especially somebody who's recently been injured or something like that, so their, their numbers don't pop up on any kind of leaderboard from the previous season. So it's you have to have a good player list to draft from. And even this year for this too early mock, I did I downloaded a combination of stats from 2019, 2020 from Fangraphs to draft from. And it still missed people. It can be hard. Right, right. Yeah. It's like what time frame to assess. And I've been looking at a lot of like since last July through the end of this year. Um just a couple different ranges and I think I've been using um, a lot more of the rolling graphs. So I'm starting to see like how much um, really usefulness that carries. Um, and because you know what, a lot of people too can are better visual learners. And I feel like when you see the graph, it's like, oh, okay, like I see that trend instead of reading a bunch of numbers down in the row. Um, but um, yeah, I uh, I've been getting more and more into the rolling graphs, and I feel like it's a good way to kind of um, assess that value instead of just looking at the you know, last three years, last four years, last, you know, and look at the, the, you know, the wave of a player and see if he's maybe, I know like Alex was, was mentioning with the max EV, you know, how it, it, it comes at the end of the year and maybe you can segue that into, okay, he's going to start hitting better that next year. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, there's so yeah, many ways. Yeah. Yeah. That rolling graph thing is a good idea. I think it also might be really useful to do in 2020 to even, and you don't even need to do rolling graphs for this, but to maybe just look at September because mm -hmm. so many guys have a little bit of a slow start. I mean, before, by the time people got going, the season was half over. So I'm curious to see if I look at September stats, what those look like, because there might be guys who just, took a little while to get into it and they would have, they would have ended up with really good numbers had the season been a full season, but you know, maybe a, a good September might be a good indicator of, of going forward to 2021. Right. Right. I like that. Okay. So we got up to the part of the podcast that would um, call three up three down. So we're going to um, talk, a talk about players that we like, and players that we don't like with a specific little threshold. Um, so for the players that we're kind of out on um, in the ADP of the top 50 and three players that we're in on with the ADP range of 150 to 200. So um, I'll give you first shot and you could pick um, whichever one you want first, the up or the down part. Well, you know, it's funny when you first um, sent me this question, <laughs> I, read it and understood it, but then wrote down three players that I'd stay away from in the top 50 and three players that I would stay away from in the late rounds. Oh, which okay. Was, which was funny. I didn't end up with it that way, but it's, it was funny because it actually made me notice one little thing that's sort of a side note. 
when I looked at the players between 150 and 200 that I did not want, I realized that I don't think I'm going to do any stashing in 2021. There are a lot of the players going in that round were like Chris Sale, um, Wander Franco, you know, Kalenic, guys like that. And if there's anything that 2020 has taught me, I think it's to keep my bench as usable as possible. Like, right. you know, you draft these guys that are rookies, they're, they're prospects that haven't come up yet, and you don't want to drop them, you know, in late April, and you don't want to drop them in early May, and, you know, you just end up hanging on to them, and you end up dropping somebody that maybe would have been better, and you, it just ends up being, like, this whole, like, messes with your mind, you know? So I think that this year I want to, as much as I can, keep a bench of – guys that are usable in my lineup and do more manipulating, you know, the Monday through Thursday, Wednesday through Friday thing with hitters and all that kind of thing. I think that 2020 taught me to be more maneuverable with my roster. Great lesson to learn, right? Yeah, Yeah. no, that's a hundred percent. I love that. Yeah. So anyway, that is just a, no, that's a good side note. I'm glad that you picked up on something like that just by looking at that group. Yeah. I miss reading a question. Yeah, by misreading. <laughs> There's value in misreading. Know, thing, yeah. from, I'll take it. <laughs> so, yeah, the first one I, I am probably staying away from in the top 50. And, you know, I didn't really get a chance to go into any of these guys super deep. But um, Bobachette, like everybody loves Bobachette. And it seems crazy to not love him. And, it, you know, I, he just looks great. Everything looks great. But, you know, he's played 75 games in the majors, and his numbers were fine. I mean, I think to take him where you're taking him, you're taking – you're betting on a significant improvement. You know, you're betting on him really making some strides towards what his potential is supposed to be, and that very well may happen. But, you know, when you look at Steamer, his projection is not that – it's pretty close to Altuve. And, you know, nobody's taking Altuve anywhere near that level. But they also had an interesting thing on Fangraphs that I saw where they had his 162-game pace for 2020, which is obviously a very flawed way to look at it, to just, you know, prorate somebody's stats. But for him, I thought it was kind of interesting because it came out to 14 home runs and 11 stolen bases to go along with his, obviously, 301 average, which is great. But – if he were to get 14 home runs and 11 stolen bases, he is not earning what his draft price is right now. And I have a feeling his draft price, if anything, is going to get a little bit higher. It can't get much higher, but you know, it, it's, it's asking a lot. And I tend to be a little bit wary of the sophomore slump, which sounds abstract and kind of, you know, out, you know, it, it sounds not tangible, but it, I think that it, can be explained by pitchers adjusting to you and you adjusting back. And that's, that's a real thing. So, you know, I think that he might have some growing pains in 2021 when people have gotten used to him and maybe he's like great and can snap back and, and respond to every adjustment that they make to him, but maybe he won't. And maybe he'll just be pretty good this year. And maybe I'm thinking maybe 2022 is the year that I want Bobachette. Right. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, growth doesn't always happen, you know, um, so quickly. And so, yeah, like the anticipation of uh, 25, 25 at 300, you know, and 100 runs is, I think, um, 
he's I think like you said, like it uh there's no reason to not wanna like him. Um, but it's at a cost that you're you're right, if he doesn't grow as we're expecting, it's gonna be severely um under what we're expecting from him. Absolutely. Yeah, you're you're betting on his like what eightieth or ninetieth percentile outcome taking him that high, which right. just me nervous, especially with a guy in his second full season or his first full season, I guess. Right, and I think he went thirteenth um, in one of the DCs. That's crazy. I mean, 13th. especially considering wh- who else you can get there. A shortstop mean. too, right? Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. That's just yeah. uh, well, it's a loaded position too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so for my first uh, avoid in the top fifty is Luke Voigt at ADP forty six. It's just. I- Almost put him. That's funny. Yeah. Right. Did you? Okay. So I'm not the only one. I just think it's too early for me. Um, I think you're paying for that career 60 game stretch. Um, and I don't buy guys, um, for those, you know, for those reasons. Um, he still doesn't really have a, a whole bunch of, um, at bats in his career. It's a decent amount. Um, but, uh, you know, his skills don't really scream differentiating himself from even like a rowdy Telez, um, who I can get later on. I feel like they have similar kind of um, skill, bu- you know, skill sets. And um, I'll and for me at first base, I'm more like it's either Freddie Freeman early or somebody late. Um, that's how I feel about the position overall. So I think for Voight, I'm not touching him. And even you know, I put him side by side too with a guy like Nicholas Castellanos, who's going you know, 40 picks later with a, with, you know, a deeper track record and, you know, Castellanos had the better contact percentage, you know, higher heart, um, hard hit rate. Um, just a, a lot of things that are really similar to Luke Voigt. Um, and I just don't think I'm going to reach that high for, uh, for Mr. Voigt as cool as he is with the short sleeves. And he looks like he wants to stick a pack of cigarettes in there. Um, it's all cool looking. He reminds me of Giambi a lot when he was on the Yankees. Yeah, that's just, what I was just about right? to say. He looks yeah. like he should be on the, the Oakland team. Right, you know, 100%. Water and all that. Yeah. So, not uh, trying to say anything about what he may or may not be taking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let him take it all. Yeah, exactly. there's there's too much gray area. Like if 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 we're constantly guessing, what if what if we knew what everyone was doing, then we'd be like, okay, everyone's on a fair. A we'd fair probably all be through. horrified. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, go with your second avoid in the top fifty. So my second one is Corey Seager and another shortstop. Partly, maybe this is partly because shortstop is just so deep. But you know he. He had a great season. It's kind of like you were saying about Void. He had like his dream 60-game stretch, but he hasn't been able to do that in a full season before now. And the main thing for me is that he doesn't run. And I don't – for me to take a shortstop who doesn't run, that's going to have to be something pretty special. And I feel like I can just wait and get Carlos Correa, who has basically the same ceiling and the same floor. I mean, they have – they both have, you know, a ceiling of high home runs and – they, they both have a floor of not playing right? because of Good injury. Point. So I don't see a whole lot of difference. I mean, Corey Seager, you know, I'm not looking at like some of the underlying skills right now, but you know, Corey Seager is fine. He's great. If he was going later, I'd be all over it, but it's, it seems like too much to pay for me right now for somebody who doesn't run. Right. I, that's a good point. I know he, 
he was a guy that I targeted a lot this year because um, I felt like um, just on the hopes of him getting healthy and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, he had a year coming off of some devastating injuries and that prospect pedigree, you know, obviously was still there. And I loved his, where he was going for his comparable skill set to other guys. So for this year, it was great. Coming in, I uh, think like in my home auction league, I got him for like $8 and, you know, um, which I, I got to try to sell him now for a well, bunch of guys. So, <laughs> it's so easy to, you know, have a guy that you get late that breaks out to not want to overpay for them the next season because, you know, you found this guy, you hit on him. It was great. You know, it makes you more of a fan of that guy. Like that's right. how I felt about Trent Grisham all year this year. But you have to kind of keep in mind that, you know, if it's somebody, especially in a season like this, like that could have been the best 60 games they're going to have their whole career and you happen to hit it. But you have to be able to kind of divorce yourself from that and like be come into the next season with like a fresh set of eyes and a clean slate and not try not to remember what somebody might have done for your team the year before, you know, and, and on the other end, you know, somebody who burned your team the year before. I try not to let that affect me either. It's hard. Yeah, but, it really you know, is. Good to try not to. I know it's like because like I think it's a confirmation bias when you like you know confirms how you feel on a on a player and they hit and you're like yes and like you said you have to separate yourself from from what they did for you last year because it is a clean slate. Boom. Yeah, yeah I like that. Um, so my next avoid is Mr. Max Scherzer. Um, He's just way too old to be, I think, in my opinion, to be investing in that ADP of 26 right now. Um, I definitely go, I definitely refuse to invest in arms, you know, uh, that old, that early. Um, I can see maybe if I start off with some like pocket ace kind of um, situation and maybe he's there in the third round and I just like try to pad that you know, starting pitcher and maybe if he doesn't tail off at this stage of his career, um, you know, I can reap those benefits, but um, I guess he's still pitching the ball pretty fast. His velo is there, but well, a lot of things went down this year. I think his, his swing and strike rate went down. His CFW went down. Um, K to walk went down and his changeup lost some movement and I think he threw it more on an average this year, but it got hit way harder, like a hundred points higher. So, and yeah, I'm just I'm not investing that early in that in an old arm. So yeah, eh, that's how I feel. Yeah, about that Max. one that one kind of hurts. Like I I love Max Scherzer, but you know it it's so hard because there's so many guys like him and Verlander. People have been out on them for years and have missed out on value by not taking them for all these years, but. You know, there is a point where, and I think that you're right that the best way to take him is like a pocket aces kind of run where he's not your only guy. Right. Because my main worry with him is is injury. So, I, you know, if you have another guy there to buffer any kind of outage that he might have, I mean, he still was pretty good in right. 2020. So, I, I'd be open to it, but I'm definitely not targeting him. Yeah, I like you said, he was still good, uh, but – there was a couple times where, you know, just being a Met fan, watching the games, or just watching a lot of games in general this year, um, just feels like he got hit hard in the zone more than usual. It seems like guys weren't chasing his stuff as usual, and they were just sitting in on that 
fastball and, you know, uh, they were rocking him more than usual. So um, who knows? I could be totally wrong on this, but I just in general, like I just did a baseball reference of pitchers over 36, you know, with seasons, you know, of 200 innings. And there's not a lot. There's not a lot that return second round value, at least, too. So, you know, there may have been guys who threw that many innings, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll play it safe there. So I'll turn it over to you for your third player that you're out on. So my third one, I did, honestly, I didn't have a great choice for the third one, but I went with Blake Snell. Um, I had him on several of my teams in 2018 when he was so great. And it was so easy to just be like, oh, he's the next breakout star. And then 2019 happened, not so good. So what is he? How do you know? In 2020, I feel like was kind of this weird mix of like, sometimes he looks great, sometimes not so much. And, but the main reason that I put him on this list is because I'm worried about the way the Rays handle their pitching and will they let him pitch enough innings to really get into a good groove. They didn't do that this year. And maybe that was a 2020 specific strategy for them, but I don't know if I want to put a particularly high pick on somebody who may not be ever allowed to go more than five innings. Right. That makes total sense. Uh, he might be another guy, like, right, reasonable expectations of what you're having him for. It's, if he's your number one, yeah, you, you're not going to feel as comfortable. Maybe if he's your two after a great stud, okay. Maybe if he's your third, now you're really, you know, you could be sitting at some good value. But, yeah, I don't trust the, I don't trust the innings. Um, it seems like he wants to, you know. Like, I feel like when I watch him play, it seems like he really is a gamer. Um, but just this, you know, it's – it's the it, the team think it's you know playing to the analytics which aren't wrong because you know mm-hmm. they they made it this far playing this way so they're not making wrong decisions um but he just seems like he he wants more you know so I'm, i don't blame him you know he's a Cy Young award winner who probably feels like he can go that whole game and win it for them and i think as competitors you know i like to see that you know uh yeah that, me too. That fire, you know yes yeah, it shows that he's got some fire up there so for my last guy, I'm out on it. And again, it's for a career, you know, you're paying for the career 60 game stretch. It's Marcelo Zuna. Um, I, I just, I saw that he went as high as 20 and with an ADP of 37. Um, yeah, no thanks. Um, that's especially if he doesn't bring his, you know, his stolen base back, they were a little low. Um, who knows what the strategy was this, this season for some team don't get hurt, you know, sliding at the second, but um you know, he, he, he was still pretty high in his uh, whiffs per swing, which is on Alex Chamberlain's leaderboard. And it's an interesting little statistic I've been throwing into some of my analysis. Um, I don't like his swing in general. Doesn't like a swing you can repeat consistently with one hand. Um, and to me, he profiles a lot, a lot like a guy that um, I know you're going to talk about, but Kyle Schwarber, um, you know, they're really close in a lot of power metrics. And I feel like the disparity in their picks right now, I'd much rather wait for um, Schwarber, you know, way, way past um, where Osuna's going. So for my third guy I'm out on at that price is Marcel Osuna. Yeah, you said, I think I heard you say that you're – you've looked into the, or used the BAB system or the Ron Chandler system. Yes. And um, I've read it and I'm very interested in it and I haven't gotten to the point of actually using it in a draft yet, but I really want to, because I think it's a genius idea to just, you know, you just put these guys in these buckets. I've kind of tried to do it like in my head, but I need to like really do it for real. 
And he's, yeah, I mean, you're looking at a guy who's pretty good average, very good power, you know, you can get that. That's something that's easy to get later in the draft. 100%. And he's not so like, cons- I mean, you, when you have somebody, and this is going to be a bad example because of 2020, but like a JD Martinez who does it every year up until this year, um, you know, you can trust those guys, but you know, when it's somebody's first time breaking out like that, yeah. And I was looking, is he a free agent? He's a free agent, right? Yes, he is again. Yeah. yeah. So it depends a lot on where he ends up. Absolutely. Cause in that brave lineup, he definitely, you know, I think it's the best spot for him right now, you know? Yeah. I it's definitely like drafting guys off of good teams, good offenses, you know, things like that. So depending on where he goes, that would change my opinion a lot. Right. A hundred percent. And whenever um, you want a little uh, crash course in Babs, let me know. Cause I feel yeah. I fully employed that during the draft and um, I, during my I research. So, yeah, cool. We'll talk about that after the show. If you want, I'll, I'll give you a little rundown or anytime in the For future. Sure. And if anyone else is listening and wants to know a little more about the Ron Chandler Bab system, you can definitely hit me up. I'll be more than glad to talk about it. Um, so now we're going to talk about some players that we are targeting in the 150 to 200 ADP range. So I'll let you go first again. So the first one that I was going to talk about, I heard, I just heard Alex mention earlier when I was listening earlier today um, was David Price and he's not, you know, going to blow the world away. Like he's not a guy that I'm picking for this huge upside, but the way that I tend to draft pitching is I kind of get a sprinkling, I get a good amount early and I like to get some good middle guys. I kind of try and take chunks of them throughout the draft and at um, these ADP and the two early mocks is 154. That seems like a good option for, cause for me that I'm looking at like an SP four, the way that I draft pitching. So yeah, give me that all day. And yeah, he's old, but maybe the year off was good for him. So, and I don't, I don't worry too much about some of these older guys being able to get back on the horse after missing a year, just because I think that, you know, he's a professional, he knows how to get ready for a season you know, just because he took a year off doesn't mean he all of a sudden like forgot how to prepare himself for a baseball season. So I think if anything, the, the fact that he missed a year might be good at his age. So I'm definitely willing to take a shot on it. I like that point that you made. He, he seemed like a guy, you know, with his career and longevity that, you know, um, could trust that he knows how to get himself back to where it needs to be. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking at some of the guys around him in drafts, you know, Savali, Haman Marquez, Julio Urias. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you look at the group, you know, of guys right there, I wouldn't mind taking a shot at, the, at David Price this year. It's going to be interesting, you know, it's going to be interesting guy to uh, peg this year. If the Dodgers let him throw like he, you know, normally throws or will baby him to like Alex Wood type per se. But uh, yeah, I like that yeah, choice. I- I think I'm going to go this year, at least I'm thinking right now that for 2021, I might go with more veterans. I listened to, you know, Sarah's talk to Jake Odorizzi on his podcast. Oh, that's a good, I, thought, uh, I have to listen to that one. Yeah, you should. And I'm actually normally not somebody who listens to a bunch of player interviews because a lot of times players just sort of give like the canned answer and it bores me. But um, he was talking about how, you know, for veteran guys, you know, the main problem that they all had this year was that there was this unknown start date. So you'd ramp up and ramp down and it was kind of all the unknown was really what was bothering them so much. So assuming that we're going into 2021 with 
an opening day on paper, you know, that everybody can work towards. I feel like the veteran guys are going to be able to properly ramp up for it even and also pitch their normal workload of innings without having to consider the fact that they pitched less in 2020. I think that they'll be able to get back to where they were that much easier. Right. Great point. And I like, I actually have my eyes on Mr. Odovizzi, whoever he signs, because another guy was like 180 ADP last year and now he's just off the, off the, off the scene. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, de- I'm definitely looking at him. So, all right. So I'm going to go with, um, Vicel Iglesias. Um, I normally am not, um, I, I, I think like we've spoken before, um, down on closers in general and just from that overall scene of how the closers are being used, but he has been a consistent horse and, I know that since he, we always talk about since he replacing him with someone, Lorenzen and, you know, Garrett, and it never came to fruition. He's still the guy. I go back to uh, an article that I read from Alex Fast last year and how teams use their closers and the Reds think and their approach was sticking to the one guy. And I don't, they haven't fared off of that. Um, and he's just, his skills have gotten better. Um, he's K's and up. Uh, he's walk percentage is down for the fourth year in a row. Um, the X-dip is right in line with his skills, 2.8. Um, yeah, I mean, there's tons of stuff to like here. And since July of 2019, he is fourth and safe behind Hendrick Tater and Rogers. So um, at that point, at once, his ADP right now is 173. I'm sure that'll adjust. Last year in the NFBC, his ADP was 120 and 100 for the main. So um I feel like even right then there, um, I'm on him because he just seems like a guy who's entrenched in the role. Um, and even his batted ball profile this year is max EV went down, barrels were down, ground ball went up. Um, so I like it. I like everything I see about Iglesias. Still only 29. Looks like he's getting better and he's not going to come out of his role. So I feel like he might be um, one of my top closers that I target this year. Yeah, and the Reds pitching coaching staff has gotten so much better that I trust them a lot more to, you know, if anything starts to be a little off with him, that they can get him back on track. But just in, in general, I love, you know, any time that you can find a place where the market's not valuing people correctly, I think that's such an opportunity. So it's kind of a trendy thing in every spring for analysts to talk about, well, this guy's not, he might be the closer now, but he's going to lose his job for this reason or the other, maybe there's a guy behind him. That's great. Maybe you think he's going to get traded. Maybe you think, but nobody knows. We don't know. So (laughs) when you hear somebody talk over and over and over again about the, Oh, I'm going to take Will Smith because Melanson's not going to, he won't be the closer for long. Everybody acts like they're, you know, so much more knowledgeable than these teams, you know, that I know that he's not going to be the closer for long. It's going to be, it's obvious that Will Smith is the better option, but it doesn't work that way. Very good point. I mean, closers, not only does and Melanson is good and like Alex Colome is good. And if they're the closer at the time of the draft, take them. If they happen to lose their job later, then deal with it later. Right. But you know, a lot of times they don't lose their job and they don't get traded. And you, you know, you have some, a team like the Marlins who, you know, you could have said, Oh, you know, they'll trade Kinsler for this season or whoever. And you know, it just doesn't happen because the team ends up being better than they thought they would. 
Right. You just never know. So like right. take the guy who's got the job and instead of all this speculation, I mean, yeah. speculation is fine when you're at the very end of the draft and you're just trying to get a couple extra guys, but take, you know, there's so many guys that are undervalued who have the job. Right. Very good point. I think that's something I know uh, Dave McDonald um, at, at Weston Dave on Twitter, you know, from the high, heat, high heat stakes boys, they, um, He's always talking about that, you know, sometimes you just have to overlook the skills, you know, and, and go with the role and target everyone you just said um, exactly. They're in there and we think they're going to change because it's a better arm and they still staying in there. So um, well, not only that, but the way the teams are playing it these days, like they don't necessarily want their best guy to be the closer. They want the flexibility to use that guy whenever they want. So it can be better to have somebody like a Melanson, a traditional closer, have that role and then be able to use a Will Smith or a Karinchak or whoever, you know, as they need it. It's it, we we want a certain guy to be the closer, but that doesn't make him the closer. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yo, who's your second player um, that you're in on? So my second guy is Dylan Carlson. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit interesting that I, you know, talk down Bo Bichette and I'm talking up Dylan Carlson when he's got a lot of the same things. You know, he's in his second year. He's, you know, but I think the price difference is, is really helpful. I mean, for starters, he's an outfielder. So I like that. But, you know, he's, he went down – uh, early in the season, he got sent down and then he came back up. And I, maybe by that time, not as many people were paying attention, but he had a really good result after he came back up. So maybe he, you know, sort of got himself together a little bit. But, you know, Steamer has him for 18 home runs, 11 stolen bases, and a 250 average. That's fine for pick 167, the 47th outfielder. Right. I mean, if that's your outfielder three, and I, I always like getting guys, I try not to get zero home run guys, but I like getting guys that have a smattering of stolen bases. You know, if you can get 11 to 15, you know, maybe even 18, 20, having multiple of those guys is great to have. And that's something that everybody's trying to do right now. So it's harder than it looks, but you know, if you can just get piecemeal stolen bases all the way throughout the draft, it helps so much. I like that. And, you know, um, I, that, I like how you said, you know, the, um, the smattering of skills because um, the next guy I'm going to bring up, Tommy Edmond, I feel like is pretty similar in that home run stolen base projection. Um, you know, he's like out of the fifth, I think there's um, 23 players right now projected from Steamer for, uh, to do 15 homers and 15 stolen bases next year and he is the lowest ADP out of those guys except for Kiermaier. Kiermaier is lower than him um, and there's only 13 guys that are projected for 15 homers and 20 stolen bases and I think he got that 20 stolen base upside more than the power um, maybe going to 20 homers and really nothing changed in his profile. He's just like a little more passive this year and his BABIP slipped so I don't know if that led to less opportunities but another thing I was thinking is you know, they were so crushed by COVID, you know, maybe they didn't want him to run, you know, maybe they just gave guys red lights because they needed fresh bodies. Um, so that's an, one of the reasons um, that I like him. Plus he's 25. He's going to be leading off. Right. And he's second, third, short and outfield. So 
Um, no, he's not a stack half darling, but um, at 183 now with ADP, four positions and maybe 15, 15. I love it all day. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, I've been a fan of multi-position guys for a while. And I think that in 2020, people started to realize how important it is, mm-hmm. but it, I'm hoping that everybody's not buying too much because I like to have that strategy and hopefully it doesn't push those guys up too much, but it, yeah, I mean, having multi-position guys is just so valuable. So I mean, valuable. like I said about having like a useful bench and having, you know, I always try to have at least two guys on my roster at any one time at every position, like that I can move around. And when you have somebody that's three or four positional eligible, that's old. Right. I saw maybe, I don't, I can't remember exactly where I read it, but I, I started last year using standings gain points in my draft sheet. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be really helpful, but I read somewhere that for every position that a guy, extra position that a guy has, you can add a standings gain point to their total. Wow. And that is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it is. It, it may, that sounds like too much to me, but if it's true, that's huge. Right. So I, I think point. it can be really helpful. Right. Yeah. Okay. I have to get more into that standing game point. I have like a, no, I have an understanding of it and I know how to apply it. I just don't know too much. I, I'm not going to say too much behind it, but I don't know the full workings of it. So it might be something that I, you know, that I need to get more accustomed to and learn about. Yeah. The, um, the book, the process, do you have the yes. book, the process? I'm, re- I'm actually reading that now. I'm like 80 pages in and, um, I'm, I'm getting up to that point. So, yeah, they've got some really good stuff from that in there. Absolutely, yeah. Every everything I've read so far in that and in, in the book has been really, really awesome. So the book is um, great. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. like you know I would constantly talk about how much good stuff is out there to consume. You know, I feel like there's, there's never enough time to consume all, all of oh, it. No. I know. So, who is the um, the third guy that you are in on in that ADP range of one fifty to two hundred? Well, we already mentioned him, and it's Kyle Schwarber. And this is a little bit more of a gut feeling than anything else. Like I liked him going into 2020. He was pretty disappointing, but pretty much the whole Cubs team was disappointing, at least their offensive players. And I think that something like you mentioned with the Cardinals and having the whole team sort of affected by their COVID situation. I think there are some teams that were just kind of out of source the whole season and the Cubs is one of them. I mean, there's so many guys underperforming that it had to affect other guys in the lineup. So I think that he has a good potential to do what we thought he was going to do when we thought 2020 was going to be a regular season. So, I mean, if I can get 35 home runs at this ADP, I'm happy. And my normal draft strategy where I'm taking plenty of early starting pitching, I'm getting in on the closers, I'm getting in on the steals, I've noticed in past years that I end up short on home runs, which is weird in this environment. But I, you know, I think that I need to make a real point of getting big home run hitters at different points in the draft. And I think that he's a really good candidate for that. It's interesting that you, that you mentioned that you were short on home runs because um, I've read a couple pieces about that. And even Todd Zola, not for this year, but the last year, he mentioned that sometimes, you know, we're drafting, too much speed or, you know, not enough power. And I have a fear of that a little bit. And, but I think I learned this year too, that there's um, through playing against 
really good players in the main event that there's, there's, you know, it's streamable as well. Um, mm-hmm. So to not to get too hung up at the draft, but just know how to um, have a solid base. And then you can always stream um, the Hansel Albertos and Evan Longoria, you know, Without on a good a day. Yeah, yeah, we're not. Yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. I didn't meant Alberto. Obviously, it doesn't hit homeless, but um, yeah, I like that. I like Schwarber. I think that he hit the ball into the ground a whole ton this year, but he still hit it hard. You know, he's still, hit, he's still hitting the ball really hard. And, um, yeah, I think that whole Cub team needs a little overhaul. And, you know, maybe the, the, the team didn't adapt to the new coach as well as everyone thought. Um, yeah. So, for my last guy that I'm in on is good old Joe Musgrove um, for this ADP. I'm loving it. Um, I picked him last year in several leagues at about the same ADP as now, about 200, 180, 190, 200. Um I also have a little bit of recency bias with him because he he helped me in my DC the last two weeks when he came back from injury. He was tremendous. Um, And, you know, I'm just liking what I see from his overall uh, profile. His pitches got better. Um, His CSW rose. um, And he started to put away guys more than um, more than often. So, um, yeah, I I think at that point with maybe like 170 to 180 strikeouts if he pitched the whole season at 280p, um, I'm liking it. So I'll be in on him at that price. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. Need to look yeah. into him more. Yeah, so that concludes our three up, three down segment. Um, thank you for giving a peek into, um, you know, the plays that you're in and out for. I think everyone's going to have some homework to do when they hear this one. <laughs> but Including now, like, me. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. I'm going to go back and look at all those guys deeper myself. So I have some listener questions for you on Twitter that I want to get out real quick. Um, so my friend Dave Swan, who's on the pod a couple episodes ago, he wants to know what's your favorite NFBC league format and why? So it's kind of a boring answer, but the main event is my favorite. You just can't beat the – especially when you can draft live that Saturday morning draft with 10, you know, eight or 10 leagues drafting at the same time. It's just so crazy, but it's, I, I just like the idea of kind of putting myself up against the best. And I've really grown to like the 15 team format. Mm. So I've, I've gotten to where I like 15 teams the best and I've, you know, we'll even do some main event qualifiers and things like that, you know, that play the same format, like, TGFBI, like I don't do the real one because I'm not in the industry, but I do the satellite every year, which I also finished second in this year, by the way. So frustrating. Yeah. Winning, I was winning going into that last two weeks. So brutal. But um, I really like that format. And, you know, I just – I also like finding leagues that are – have some quirky rules, like Cutline. I mean, Cutline's interesting, you know, that you only have two fab periods, and it's points league, and it's best ball, and I just kind of like – sometimes adjusting my strategy for a unique format. But yeah, I, the main event's my favorite, but I definitely want to do an auction. I'm going to try to work towards doing an auction this year, maybe while I'm in Vegas. I think that'd be fun. I agree with you. I, I want to get into an auction. I, I had an auction that, that me and Alec Chamberlain did, and it, got, it was one of the leagues that got scratched. But I definitely want to get back into an auction. I love the auctions, and um, I love the whole feel of it and the whole, you know, seeing what everyone, you know, got a bit on guys, definitely. Uh, and, and I think you made a good point too, like just 
finding league that uh, maybe you don't feel comfortable doing, you know, and like the cut line was something I tried and I enjoyed it, you know, uh, not like my, my favorite, but it, you know, it gives you a different eyeball to different, you know, different things. And I feel like every league that you play that's different only makes you better overall, if that makes some sense somehow. But um, yeah, so I like that. Um, and I agree with the main event. It's like something that I really wanted to, uh, even though I won the DC and that I, that's my favorite now, but <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, you know, the main event, like you said, you want to put yourself up against the best and you know, that's what you want to do. You know, we're in this to really compete and um, see what we're made of. So um, next question I have from Lucas J. Bury at Bury Plox 33. He wants to know who are your, who are some post 250 ADP picks that have stolen base upside? Or that yeah, you're interested. There... Cough, cough, Miles Straw, cough, cough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Miles Straw is an interesting one. So I took a quick look at what, you know, what was after 250. For the most part, I am hoping that I don't have to do this. I'm hoping to get, you know, some decent stolen bases in the first few rounds and then get those, you know, 11 to 15 guys later. But we all end up in a situation where we have to do it. it you know, guys go earlier than you think they will and whatever, and you find yourself looking for steals late. The two names that stuck out to me were um, Leo Di Tavares and Victor Reyes. So wow, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm going to admit I don't know a ton about Leo Di Tavares. I just started looking into him when I was asked this question, and he's pretty interesting. I've heard a couple people just randomly here and there mention his name as a guy that they like going into next year. And I definitely need to do some more work on him. But, you know, he looks like he has pretty moderate power. So he's not a zero. And if he can get you 20, 25 steals and he's hitting um, leadoff, he's listed at least right now as leadoff um, on roster resource for the Rangers, you know, sign me up. I'm done with that. It, you know, I don't have his ADP in front of me, but it's pretty late. Right. And then Victor Reyes kind of broke out this year and he's also really interesting who I need to look into more, but he also seems like somebody who has the potential to not be a zero in other categories because, and have playing time. And that's the biggest thing. Like Miles Straw, John Birdie, Roman Quinn, those are all guys that, you know, seem great on paper, but if they don't play enough, the reality of trying to use them in your lineup is just, it, you, you don't, you don't ever end up doing it because you look at a week coming up and you think, okay, what if he plays three games this week? Right. You know, what, what am I going to do with that? That's not helping me. Even if he gets like one steal out of it for the week. So you end up struggling with those guys. At least I find that I end up struggling. So anytime I can get somebody that I at least know is playing all the time and if they can be up in the lineup, all the better. Right. But, um, yeah, those are the kind of guys that I look at. It's definitely but a range, hoping, too. Like you said, like after 250, you're hoping not to rely on, you yeah, know, those. I'm yeah, I don't need great. 100%. That's really a great point. And so I just re just quickly brought up Tavares in the NFBC and the DC so far. The four drafts, he's um, has an ADP of 224 with a min 211. So people are on him now. People are definitely on him. And and like you said, he he's not going to give you nothing in power. And, you know, he the young young guy, I think they're going to keep him in there. Um, obviously, if there's a point where he's hurting your team, you can take him out. But um, I like that. Very good. I, yeah. I picked him in a dispersal dynasty draft, inherited a team, and um, 
two two owners dropped out, and uh, the, the two owners that were taken over had the draft from the two teams. And uh, yeah, I he was one of the guys I I grabbed and pretty excited. So that made me look into him a bunch more. Absolutely. Um, all right. So our friend Phil Dussel, huge friend of the pod. Um, all right, good friend Philly. All right. So he wants to know that I've been talking to Rob about some best balls a lot in the past few weeks, but I've never done one myself. So how does your general strategy differ in the cut line compared to a standard roto league? So the way that I approach a cut line, and I also do this with DCs, is those are formats where I especially try to get as many uh, multi-position guys as possible. Any kind of best ball format, I think multi-position is just so valuable because, you know, the software is picking – you know, just for your shortstop that's going to count for that week, it's choosing from everybody on your roster that's shortstop eligible. And if you have multiple guys, like I think the cut line draft is 42 rounds, 420 players because it's only a 10-team league. So I try to get five guys eligible at each infield position and like plus 10 outfielders plus a bunch of pitchers. So the only way to do that is to get multi-position guys. And it helps so much. So I, I think that that's my main difference, but um, I, I like it. I think it's, it's a good strategy. And I also just do the sort of basic strategy of looking at the scoring and taking a set of projections and just applying that scoring to those projections. Right. It'll bump up some guys that you don't see coming. So it's, it's useful to use. I don't always, you know, just go by it straight, but it it's, can be a really useful exercise. Are you going to um, join any of the the, the non-cut line, just the uh, the new NFC best ball that they introduced? Yeah, I think I might. I haven't really looked at – I've seen a couple of tweets and things come out about some of their new contests going into next year, and I haven't really given them a good look yet. But I'm always open to stuff like that, especially because there's only so many fab leagues you can really do Absolutely. in a season. You just can't keep up. So, I, you know, I want to be able to give enough extra energy to – the fab that I need to do the, the main events and the ones that are, you know, for a lot of money. So having best balls on the side is really helpful. Absolutely. And I think it looks like the roster size and the starting, the starting position um, are both definitely increased from the cut line format. So, and there's more teams as 12 instead of 10. So um, definitely a little bit of a, probably different, you know, some different kind of strategies involved in uh in there so uh phil also wants to know from what you saw of trevor bauer in 2020 do you think he has what it takes to join the big three in 2021 he does does that mean he will i don't know i i find it interesting that you know and i'm pretty sure i was listening to you know sarah's point this out but he spent however many years trying to blow the whistle on people using foreign substances and it didn't get him anywhere. I mean, I think that it's one of those issues, and MLB has a lot of them, that they just want to turn a blind eye to. So, you know, they'll, they'll bust somebody if they, like, have a giant brown smear on their neck. But, you know, otherwise, they just really don't want to see it. So, all of a sudden this year, Trevor Bauer gets, like, some crazy amount of extra spin. And how do you do that? You use a foreign substance. I don't know that it was doing that, but, you know, it's kind of had that feel of like, okay, you guys don't want to listen to me. Do you want to see what it can do? 
let me show you what it can do when you add something. So I like, you know, plus, you know, he's a great pitcher and he, he tinkers and he thinks about it all the time. So he has some volatility that I don't think other people have. Does he have the skill for it? Yeah. Right. And can he pitch every fourth day? Do te- would a team want him to pitch every fourth day? If he does, that could be great. You never know. He could try it and it, his performance could suffer for it. Right. Who knows? Like I find him just a complete mystery. I'm willing, I'm willing to try it, especially if I'm, you know, picking a lot of pitchers early, you know, getting him in there wouldn't be such a bad thing. I think everybody expects him to leave Cincinnati. I don't necessarily, I don't, unless he's particularly interested in getting a big money deal from a big market team. And he doesn't seem like the type to me. Um, I think he could very well end up back with the Reds. You know, they've got the driveline guys. They've got a great pitching staff. They seem, he seemed to be happy this year with what they were letting him do. And it's in the Reds best interest, especially if he's talking about taking one year deals for the next several years the Reds are in their window right, right now to compete. And they last offseason, they spent some money. So I could definitely see them bringing him back on a one-year deal and, you know, letting him go for it. And if, you know, if he's back with the Reds, I don't see any reason to think that he won't be as good as he was. Well, not as good as he was this year, but, you know, skills-wise, as good as he was this year. Right. So I actually segued into Phil's last question, which he wanted to know if you think the Reds keep adding this offseason um, to try to compete or that they try to trade Iglesias and Bradley to start a mini rebuild. I don't feel like they're in rebuild mode. They did pretty well rebuilding after the last peak. Mm-hmm. That, that last peak, being a Reds fan, that little playoff run that they've had, the, the playoff failures of the Reds over the last 10 years or is just horrifying. But um, I, I think that they might just go out and get some more pieces similar to what they did last year. But for the most part, I, as long as they can keep who they have, they can keep Bauer, you know, and they've got Bauer and Gray and um, blanking on Castillo. Castillo. Yeah. Um, And, you know, they've got a good bullpen. They've got good hitting. They had some guys underperforming for part of the year, but they kind of came around. They obviously couldn't hit in the playoffs, but I I feel like they're almost there. If they could just add a couple little pieces, I don't know that they need to really go into rebuild mode yet. Gotcha. I I agree. I think they're right there. I think, I think Bauer looked like he's comfortable there, like you mentioned. And I feel like, um, they have a window, a little window, uh, you know, with the good pitching and the hitting just have to come around. But I think like you mentioned earlier in the show, I think it was, you know, the hitters had a little bit of a late start adjusting. I think that, you know, the, the team intra-squad games they had weren't really anything of a a good, you know, replication of even spring training games. And, um, yeah, I like the Reds to do that. I hope they push forth and they really try to go for it because I – I like the makeup of the team and I like Bauer too. I just feel like, you know, what you mentioned, he's a worker. He wants to be the best and however it takes him to be the best. And like you said, maybe it was a prove it point, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm good, but here's what I could do with, you know, the substance that Garrett Cole used as well. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent point. So cool. Yeah. So we made it through, we made it through the All podcast. Right. I appreciate you uh, spending some time with me on this gorgeous day to talk a little baseball. 
No problem. It was fun. I'm on, I'm on quite a list of guests that you've had. So I feel a little inferior, but you know, when you're, when you're like up against Phil and Alex and you know, those guys are so good. So you've gotten some really great guests so far. So I'm just happy to be a part of it. Absolutely. You're great as well, Jenny. There's no downplaying that anyone who finishes 75th overall in the main event, I definitely want to talk to and pick their brains. Absolutely. Hopefully I can improve on it next year. I was so close. So close. Yeah. I mean, that's all we, that's all we try to do. Keep getting better. So again, I really appreciate you coming on and um, hopefully we can meet each other soon and do one of these drafts together. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, Jenny, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alrighty, guys, that'll conclude this episode of the Pull Hitter Podcast. Once again, thank you so much for listening. All the fans and support have really motivated me and inspired me to do more podcasts and create even better content. Um, so again, thank you for joining me on this journey into my podcast life and into fantasy baseball life. Um, again, if you haven't subscribed or rated or reviewed the pod yet on a platform that you could do so, that's much appreciated. If not, I'll take the listen all day. Thank you so much, guys, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye.